just by way of reminder as we open up to Revelation chapter 3. I want to create a culture here at Gospel Life Church in which if you have questions about the Bible, if you have questions about the biblical text that you really like want to bring up and you're like, I don't really know where to do that. Well, one immediate place to do that is following our worship service right in here. And usually we hang out on this side of the chapel, but about 15 minutes, 10 minutes or so after the service is out, we start a Q&A right here. And we would love for you to join us. If you have questions, we actually have a, um, a section in the liturgy packet for you to write those down. And uh, I know that, you know, in our church we have people here who are brand new to the Bible. Uh, and people here who grew up believing in Christ and know their Bibles very well. And uh, all the way through there, we, we have different levels of questions and wrestlings and um, just invite you to bring those questions up there in an immediate kind of sense. But before we get started this morning, let's ask for help. Father, we come to you this morning before we look into your word and we confess our capacity to approach a text like this, to approach any text, with an eye on how others should respond to it, but not really ourselves. Lord, I confess to you this morning, my capacity to read Revelation 3 and to think of others but not apply it to me, to distance myself from it because somehow I think uh, it doesn't apply to me. Lord, I just pray that your spirit would be active in bringing real conviction to bear as we read and proclaim your word, that we might repent joyfully, Lord, and um, have this life that you hold out to us. So. We pray all this in the name of the one who can do it, in Jesus, amen. Well, hang with me for a minute, okay? I'm not a doctor, but, but uh, I'm going to try to describe this accurately. Try to put yourselves in the shoes of this medical patient. So imagine that one night you have severe headaches, okay? You go to bed and you've got these severe headaches and you wake up and you continue to have these headaches, but following the headaches you realize... You can't really move around your house without bumping into things. So you think, I should go to the doctor. So you reach out to grab the keys that are in front of you, and they're right there. But you can't get them. So you're like, I shouldn't drive anywhere. Something's wrong. So you wait for your roommate to come home because you can't reach for the phone either. You see it, but you're having a hard time grabbing it. And your roommate takes you. You know, it's, You find it strange that... You can't seem to walk through the door without bumping into the wall, even though the door's right in front of you. The, the roommate, though, brings you out to the car, drives you to the hospital, and you meet with this doctor, you meet with the medical team, you describe the issues that you're facing, and so they bring in an emergency ophthalmologist, an emergency neurologist, to kind of assess what's happening. They run some tests, and finally they tell you, the neurologist tells you, well, we, we did a CAT scan. It seems like you've had some head trauma. It could be a lot of reasons. We'll try to figure it out. But the ophthalmologist says, one thing, one thing is certain. You're completely blind. You're totally blind. You can't see a thing. Your eyes aren't working. Right? Now, this is a surprise to you, the patient, because you can see all of them. You can see the bed that you're lying in. You can see your medical gown. You can see the faces of your friend and, and the different doctors who are in the room. Only... You can't see. You can't. One of them puts a, a pen, you know, out from their notepad, and they put it on the 
on the food tray in front of you. And you say, there's not a pen there. There's no pen. There's a, it looks like flowers that someone left here at the hospital kindly. And the doctor says, no, no, there's no, there's no flowers there. One of the doctors describes themselves as being tall with brown hair, but you would imagine them short with blonde hair. You, that's how you saw them. One of them says they're waving, but you don't see any movement from them. Come to think of it, now that you look at your friend, you recognize them, but something seems a little off. Their face seems a little off. They don't look like themselves. And that's because you are really blind, but you just don't realize it. Now, it's crazy. I think that scenario sounds to most people. It sounds like it's an episode of House MD, and I'm pretty sure it was, actually. But it's an actual medical disorder known as Anton's Syndrome, a rare medical disorder in which an individual suffers some kind of trauma or stroke or something of that nature. And as a result, they go completely blind, but their brain continues to show them to function in a way that gives them the perception of sight, the same way that our brains would do that as we dream, right? Our eyes are closed as we dream, and yet we, we see things that we perceive as, at least in the moment, real. This is why the face of the friend Kind of like in our dreams, it kind of looks like them, but something's, something's a little bit off, right? You can actually describe things in vivid detail in your surroundings that aren't actually there. You saw keys in front of you, there weren't any keys. You tried walking through the hallway, but you hit a wall or a counter because you weren't in the hallway. And so patients with Anton syndrome will, as you imagine, quite adamantly affirm in the face of all evidence to the contrary that they can indeed see. And one of the problems that doctors have in talking to patients with Anton's syndrome is that it's often very difficult for them to convince someone with Anton's that they're blind. Because the power of the brain in delivering such clear and vivid details makes it appear as though they can see, right? It's a kind of a scary thing to hear. As a result, you can also imagine not only is this person in need of medical treatment for the trauma that's associated with whatever caused Anton's syndrome, but they're in danger. They're in immediate danger of hurting themselves. They could walk down a flight of stairs, right? Um, in fact, the, one of the number one symptoms of Anton's syndrome is that you fall down a lot. Somebody just finds themselves falling down a lot, so they call emergency. Um, but they can also be a danger to others. I mean, imagine someone with Anton's syndrome driving a bus full of people, right? Um, they can be a danger to others as they lead them around. And, and listen, um, this is a more obvious example of self-deception because people with Anton's syndrome are absolutely convinced oftentimes that they see. Evidence is presented that can't be uh, contradicted, but they're absolutely convinced in their own experience that they can see. So it's self-deception. There are a lot of ways that self-deception manifests itself in the human experience, but Anton's syndrome really paints, I think, the most vivid picture of what I think it really looks like in an extreme kind of way, perhaps, but I think this is actually, it's not very extreme. I think it's real. This is real. Where it fails as an example is that while Anton's syndrome is very rare, self-deception in the human heart is much more common. It's often just as blind to reality, just as insistent that everything is okay when, in fact, spiritually... It is indeed not okay. It's easy to think of Anton's syndrome as this extreme problem that the vast majority of Americans will never face. And we just kind of shrug it off as an interesting scenario as we turn off that episode of House MD 
And then we walk off and spiritually fall off the staircase. Right? And we get no better picture of this kind of self-deception, this functional, practical, daily self-deception, than in Jesus' words to the Laodiceans. If we uh, move another 45 miles southwest, southeast, sorry, from Philadelphia along this courier route, this common postal road, which is how these churches, these seven churches, if we remember from, from the outset, were ordered, we finally now find ourselves in the city of Laodicea, 100 miles east of Ephesus, where these addresses began, if you remember. So this is the last address to these seven churches. And since Philadelphia, you know, as we talked about last week, was known as, I don't know if you remember, but the gateway to the east. And what was meant by this was that they were the gateway to the east in terms of commerce. They were starting to kind of like be the place where you could enter into where the most kind of trade happened, the most wealth happened. This meant that Laodicea, further east of them, was well positioned financially. They were an extremely wealthy city, a first century banking center. It was where all the money was. They traded in textiles. They were especially known for, for the, the soft raven black wool that Laodicea would develop. The people would come from all over the world in order to get this raven black wool so that they could say to others, like, look, I have, I have the, the clothing from Laodicea. They were also known for having something of a reputation for first century ophthalmology at their famous school of medicine. People with uh, various eye diseases would travel long distances to this med school because they had developed this compound that they called Phrygian powder. They said when mixed with, with water, when mixed up, you could actually apply it as an eye salve. And the claim was that it could actually bring an end to a lot of various eye disease. This, of course, made them even more wealthy, people coming from all over to, to, to get their clothing, to have treatment for their eye problems, eye ailments. And it got to the point, they got so wealthy that this massive earthquake that what I think we've referenced once before hits all of Asia Minor in about 60 AD. And it, it levels many cities there. It levels Philadelphia, right? But unlike Philadelphia, who required Rome financially to step in and offer aid to rebuild the city, the people of Laodicea, they don't want to be beholden to a Roman Empire. They don't want any favors from Imperial Rome. And they told them, we'll just rebuild it ourselves. Thank you. Not only that, not only do they turn down Roman aid, but the wealthiest citizens rebuild various portions of the city in, uh, in a way that's more beautiful than it was before. They see it as an opportunity, right, to, to, do, to do even better than they could have before. This was the level of, of their wealth. And it's this kind of self-sufficiency, that of a famous, wealthy city that, that they believe had built that fame and wealth through their own efforts and work and therefore didn't want or require help from others because for them, asking for help is an admission of weakness. It's that kind of picture of self-sufficiency that the church in Laodicea also struggles with. The text this morning is going to paint the picture for us of a church that really functions in the exact opposite way from the church last week in Philadelphia. In fact, as this painting comes into fuller focus, we step back and we see that, that it contains seven different word pictures. You know, Jesus uniquely talks to, addresses the city in Laodicea with seven different illustrations, seven different word pictures in order to help them understand the reality of their spiritual 
neediness. And it is interesting that Jesus seems to employ more word pictures here than any other letter for this city that's known for their ability to see and help others see. He's, he's now giving them these pictures to look at. Last week we saw what happens when you acknowledge your spiritual poverty, powerlessness before the Father. This week the question becomes, but what if you're pretty sure you're rich and powerful? What if you're pretty sure that you can save yourself? What if you're pretty confident that your spiritual life is actually healthy on its own merit? What if you think you can see pretty well? This is why Jesus gives us each of these word pictures, is to answer those questions. So let's look at the first one together, where we see the picture of an all-sufficient Savior. The picture of an all-sufficient Savior. Verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Again, this is addressed not only to the Laodiceans themselves, but it's under the angelic realm, okay? Uh, the angel who in some sense intercedes on behalf of this church in order that, the reason it's written primarily is so that the church really would see how critical it is that they sit up and pay attention. That this isn't just addressed to me, that this is addressed to the angelic realm interceding for us. In other words, eternal things are at stake in each of these letters. And in Laodicea, that's even more the case than most because they're one of two churches that receive no words of praise. So the majority of these seven churches receive a word of praise. The majority of these seven churches receive a word of rebuke. And if you remember from last week, Philadelphia was one of two churches that received no word of rebuke, only praise, and this week it's the exact opposite. They have no words of praise extended to them in Laodicea. And we're going to see that in clearer terms in a moment. And so this introductory description of Jesus that we see pictured for us here is meant to be something of a contrast between the Christ, the one who, who he is and what, what he's done, as we'll see, and who these smug Laodiceans think they are. Jesus is the Amen, echoing Isaiah chapter 65, recounting that he's the God of truth. Unlike the Laodiceans, Jesus speaks truthfully. What does he testify about? What is he speaking truly? Well, he speaks truly about himself. He speaks truly about who he is and what he's done. But it's not just doctrine that's the key problem here. When we say that the Laodiceans have not spoken truly, what we come to find is that they have not been the word used here is witnesses. They haven't been faithful witnesses. That is to say, they haven't borne witness to the truth with their own lives, with the way that they live. They haven't lived in a way that demonstrates the truthfulness of what they believe. It, it can be easy to sometimes fragment life in such a way where it's like, okay, this is what I believe, and this is how I live. But over and over again, the scriptures make clear, these two things cannot be removed from one another. Right? And we see... The same thing is true here. The Laodiceans have not borne witness to the truth by the way they live. They haven't lived in a way that demonstrates the truthfulness of what they claim, but actually quite the opposite is true. But where they have been unfaithful, here's the good news, where the Laodiceans have been unfaithful in the way that they live, they've been unfaithful witnesses with their lives, Jesus is a faithful and true witness. Where they've failed, he's succeeded. Jesus is a faithful and true witness who bears witness to the truth by his life before the Father that we should have lived, 
by his death for us on our behalf, and by his resurrection. He bears witness to the truth in what he has done. He, he bears witness to the truth in what he does presently because he even bears witness to the truth in this proclamation. In Revelation 3, to this church, this warning to them is full of grace and mercy with this eager expectancy as we'll see that they might turn away from their unfaithfulness and turn towards Christ. The question the Laodiceans might have is, well, wait a minute, why should we turn toward him? Aren't, aren't we already okay? Things seem like they're just fine. I mean, the Laodiceans, they're extremely wealthy. They're extremely powerful. You know, did, didn't they even turn away the Roman Empire when they were offering help? So why on earth should they turn to Jesus here? Well, Jesus concludes telling them why. He concludes this first picture by describing himself as the beginning of creation. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that Jesus is a created being. And this is clear just in Revelation itself. It can't be what it means. It contradicts not just what we see throughout the Bible about Jesus and his divinity, Jesus being God, but it also contradicts what Revelation teaches about Jesus. It says that he has no beginning and no end in Revelation 22, that he is the beginning and the end. And so some people would say, well, okay, beginning of creation, that means that Jesus is the source of creation. That means that just like we see in like places like John chapter 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things that were not God, the Word spoke into existence. He created them. He's the source. And it's true theologically, but I don't think that's what this text is getting at. I think this is telling us that the creation that Jesus begins is actually the new creation. Throughout Revelation, this word creation is often used to indicate new creation. In other words, Jesus is telling them that the new creation, the creation that is yet to come, begins with him. He's, he's the beginning of it. But how? By his resurrection. So in chapter 1, verse 5 of Revelation, as we started, Jesus is, is revealed to us as the firstborn of the dead. What does that mean? Well, listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Jesus is the first one risen. He's raised into this new life, this resurrected body. Verse 21, for as a man came by death, as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. So by one man's sin comes death for everyone. By one man's resurrection, resurrection will come for everyone. Is that happening now? Well, let's hear what Paul writes. He says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, he's been raised. And then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. See, Jesus' resurrection gives believers this picture of the very re resurrection that John's revelation puts, puts out for them, holds out to them. This hope of resurrection that you have, your resurrection body, can be seen in Christ. He's the first fruits of this resurrection. Because he's been raised, you will be raised. You'll be given this resurrection body. And it's all possible only through Christ. He's the only one in whom any of these promises can be fulfilled. And in comparison 
to the power and riches that they claim to possess? I mean, it shows those things to be child's play. He's the only one who has the resources to give them everything they need. In other words, this is the picture of an all-sufficient Savior. He's able not only to meet the needs of the Laodiceans, but he exceeds their needs in ways that they can't even imagine. It's impossible to even comprehend, right? In every single way for us. He's the picture of an all-sufficient Savior. And this really matters because when we get to now the second word picture in the text, we come to discover that this church in Laodicea is displaying an insufficient spiritual life. So right next to this picture of an all-sufficient Savior, if you're taking notes, is now a picture of an insufficient church, a picture of an insufficient spiritual life. Look with me at verse 15, starting there. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. This rhetoric here, the way that Jesus uses these words, It's intended to startle the church at the outset. So Jesus says, I know your works. What typically follows in the majority of these letters is a word of commendation. And then instead of immediately praising them or immediately condemning them, he he starts with saying, you are neither cold nor nor hot. So this is pretty subtle, but it has the effect of saying like, here's the best I can do for you. Like this church in particular, they're pretty confident that they're going to receive a word of praise. If Philadelphia received praise, certainly they're receiving praise. So they're kind of waiting for it. They're pretty confident. And Jesus says, this is the best I've got for you. This is the best I can say. You're neither cold nor hot. What does that mean? Well, now we get a sense of what it means by the next verse where the word picture becomes more vivid and even more shocking to the Laodiceans, verse 16. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. This word picture of Jesus drinking of the Laodicean church and spitting them out of his mouth. For a long time, this passage was commonly preached to me that the church here in Laodicea was neither cold and lifeless spiritually in a, in a place of spiritual death, nor were they like hot and passionate with this fervent Christian fervency, and that Jesus would rather actually have them embrace a cold and lifeless spiritual death apart from him than to ride the fence in between the two. But you don't hear that interpretation much anymore, actually, and for good reason. Okay, for good reason. I couldn't find a contemporary commentary that still teaches that. And I think for good reason. First of all, that view, I think, misunderstands the themes in Revelation, misunderstands the heart of God. God's preference between fence-riding And evil isn't one or the other. In fact, as we see throughout Revelation, the whole idea is that there's no distinction between fence riding and wickedness. Like, we've talked about this before, but Revelation, just like all first century apocalyptic literature, it's very black and white. That's the point. Okay, you're either a follower of God or a follower of the beast. You're either in or you're out. So it misunderstands, I think, the categories, and it makes it sound as though God would actually, that his preference would be for spiritual death rather than fence riding. No, his preference is for repentance. I mean, we're going to see that. There's a very clear preference of God's heart, and it's for repentance. But secondly, and again, I think it dehistoricizes the metaphor. It removes it from its first century context. In the first century, just like today, both hot and cold water were good, not bad. Both of them were positive. Neither one was negative. So people in the first century aren't reading this with cold being lifeless. 
Hot water was considered to be a tonic, to have healing properties, much like you would enjoy a, a cup of herbal tea when your throat is, is hurting. You'd soak your strained muscles in a hot bath, and it just feels very good. People would come from all over to do that, right? Cold water was considered to be refreshing, especially in the dry summer heat of Laodicea. So both were positive. And in Laodicea, while they prided themselves on all the things that they were able to accomplish, one of the things they weren't able to, to figure out was their water supply. See, they're about six miles away from the nearest hot water supply in Heropolis. Heropolis was actually known for their kind of famous uh, hot springs. That again, people would come from all over. I don't know if you've ever visited a city that's known for their hot springs. I have, right? And it's, it's really interesting. People come and they, they bathe in them. They, they play in them. Uh, it's, it's a tonic. It's something of a tonic. So people would come to Heropolis, but they're about six miles away from the nearest hot water supply. They were also about 10 miles away from the cold, pure drinking water of Colossae, one of the few cities in the first century that had that kind of cold and pure water source. And Laodicea, it wasn't that they had an inadequate water supply. It's that all things considered, they just didn't have one functionally that the whole city could use. And so their solution was to pipe, they're again, very wealthy, so to use an aqueduct that would pipe hot water in from Hierapolis, about five, six miles away. They'd pipe cold water in 10 miles away. But by the time both would move through the aqueduct and arrive in Laodicea, they were lukewarm. This is a, a known, a common first century problem. And it was true here. The hot water had lost its soothing effect. The cold water had lost its refreshing nature. It was lukewarm. And Jesus is saying this about this church's spiritual life. He pictures himself as one drinking from it. And this actually, I would argue, isn't hard to imagine. So it's not like we have to like uh, kind of put ourselves into a different first century category to get it. Like, I love hot coffee. If you know me, you know I love, I drink a little too much coffee. I love hot coffee. I love iced coffee as well. Both of them are delicious for different reasons, I would argue. Hot coffee throughout the year provides soothing heat. It's, as a friend of mine put it a few years ago, it's actually um, kind of rem it's something that you have during the summer, summer warmth, that you actually you can take with you into the winter. It's kind of nice, right? Hot coffee throughout the year provides a soothing nature. Iced coffee on, on a hot summer day can be especially refreshing. But one thing I hate, and most people, I, I would argue, hate uh, more than anything is lukewarm coffee. Like, listen, if my coffee sits all day in a cold room, my, my study at home isn't as insulated as the rest of the house, so it gets cold fast. And I like that. I like the colder um, temperature, right? So if I shut the doors in there, it gets cold. If I leave my coffee in there all day, it gets cold kind of quick, especially if it's in a mug. And I will still drink it. I enjoy cold coffee. But it's that in-between taste when, you know, I wouldn't describe it as, like, even warm. And it's certainly not cold yet. It's like warm ish, the, the key phrase being ish, right? It's nauseating. And, and that's what Jesus is saying. As Schreiner says, they've lost their spiritual tonic and fervency. And the result is that Jesus will spit them from his mouth, which is the kind of imagery that's meant to remind us of the Canaanites who in their wickedness were vomited out of the land. It's a way of Jesus expressing like, you do not belong to me if I spit you from my mouth. 
I'm helped by the way my former hermeneutics prof, the late great Grant Osborne says it. He says, the exalted Christ is challenging them with a powerful rhetorical question. Don't you realize you make me sick? Don't you realize you make me sick? Remember, this was a church that was convinced they were doing well. You might think, seems like harsh language from Jesus to this church. Well, this is a church that they're pretty sure, they're pretty confident that they're just fine on their own merits. And so Jesus wants to make it very clear that they're not fine, that things are not okay. So this church is expecting spiritual commendation, but instead gets this shocking picture of an insufficient spiritual life with Jesus spitting them out of his mouth. And as you can imagine, now at this point, the church hears this, not expecting it, and they say, but why? Like, how? Jesus, how? Like, it reminds you of when Jesus is talking about, there are those who will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we? Lord, Lord, didn't, didn't we proclaim your name? Didn't we, didn't we do all that you've asked? And Jesus says, he, he tells them, depart from me, I never knew you. This is the same kind of situation. Why? How did this happen? And that brings us to the third word picture, if you're taking notes, a picture of self-sufficient self-deception. A picture of self-sufficient self-deception. The reason for their deep spiritual insufficiency, Jesus says, is ultimately found in self-sufficient self-deception. Look at the boasting in their language. I am, I have, I have, right? I am rich, I have prospered, I have no need of anything, right? It's all about them. They've, they've worked hard to appear outwardly a certain way. They have worked hard to meet their own needs. Whereas the churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia recognize their poverty and recognize their powerlessness, the church of Laodicea thinks they've made it. They think they've kind of arrived. They think they've, they have both an intellectual and otherwise a sense of others by, by nature of their standing. They believe that they've made themselves rich and powerful. And they really view themselves that way. See, this is what we have to understand. Don't, I think it will lead us astray. And listen to this for a minute. Um, if you've checked out, come on back in. This is really important to understand these seven letters. That the difference is not between the two. We shouldn't walk away from this saying, okay, so, so what you're saying, Jeremy, is that the church in Philadelphia was poor and the church in Laodicea is rich, and that's the problem. Like, Jesus loves the poor and, you know, this church who's rich, that's, that's the issue. No, that's not the issue. The issue is actually both the church in Philadelphia and the church in Laodicea is poor, but only one realizes it. Both the church in Laodicea and the church in Philadelphia is powerlessness, but one of them thinks they're not. One of them thinks they're powerful. Both of them are blind, but one of them thinks they can see. The other one recognizes their blindness and calls out to the one who can give them sight. See, this is the difference. It's like, this is what Jesus meant when he said, it's easier for the camel to pass through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to be saved. He didn't mean that the material wealthy can't be saved. In fact, he says in the same text, because the disciples are catching on to what he's teaching, and they say, well, then can anyone be saved? And Jesus says, well, with man it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. Thanks be to God, right? Okay. So he's not saying that, but what he's saying, and, and this is a theme that we find throughout the scriptures, those without any need, and we all need to hear this in the Western world, those without need or many needs will often also not see their spiritual needs. I think this is, 
This is true. The danger for all of us is that we can be self-deceived into a kind of self-reliance in which we think we can actually meet our own spiritual needs. After all, we have resources at our disposal in the Western world to pretty much solve most of our problems by writing checks or by going to, to hospital. Because of the wealth of the Western world, we can kind of fix a lot of problems with resources. And so therefore, it can be very easily deceived that the same is also true spiritually. But Jesus says, here's a picture of what that looks like. And listen to the picture. They paints for them. He says, okay, so in your own minds, you're this wealthy church in a wealthy city known for its fine clothing and cutting-edge ophthalmology, eye treatment, you know, eye medicine. But in a much more real sense, you're poor, naked, and blind. Like in a much more real sense. C.S. Lewis calls this the Shadowlands, right, in comparison to the new creation that is yet to come. So this isn't real life, whereas the spiritual realm is not real or less real. It's actually the opposite. That's more real. You know, and Jesus says in a much more real sense, you're wretched, poor, naked, and blind. Like the picture here is like, imagine a blind person. Naked and poor, completely blind, naked and poor, dirty, sitting outside of a street in downtown Minneapolis. And he stands up. And he proclaims to everyone that he's an eye doctor with perfect vision who can sell you the finest clothes. Who can help you with his wealth. Like that's the level of self-deception that Jesus describes here. They think that because of these earthly achievements in Laodicea, in the Shadowlands, that they must not really be in need of Christ in eternity. They must not really be in need of Christ now. So what are they to do? Well, that brings us to the fourth word picture, where Jesus mercifully shows them a picture of recognizing their neediness. So we see a picture of a recognition of their need. Verse 18, I counsel you, what, what, what must they do? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments that you may clothe, your, clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus says, here's what you do. He says, realize that all of your riches that you think you have have no eternal significance, right? Lay up for yourselves not treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. They have no eternal significance. It's child's play in comparison to the riches that Jesus offers. So realize... All of your riches have no eternal significance. And the riches I offer you in my kingdom are incomparable and go on for all eternity. Realize that the fine clothes that you've produced are like rags that don't even cover your nakedness in comparison to what I offer you. Come to me instead for garments that can truly cover over your shame and nakedness. We're reminded back into the garden where sin brings this shame and a recognition of nakedness and shame God covers them over, but throughout the Old Testament, what we come to see is this picture of soiled garments being replaced by pure white garments, like the one that Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, is wearing in the introductory chapter of Revelation. It signifies that despite our wickedness, despite our desperate condition, despite our soiled state, Jesus holds out his own righteousness to cover over our unrighteousness. He says, realize that I can dress you in something that will bring you more joy than you're even aware of. Realize, he says, that the eye salve that you've developed, this Phrygian powder, it hasn't made you see anything. You're still blind. 
Come to me that you might truly see, that you might first truly see your need for a Savior, and then you might truly see the Savior who comes to meet that need. In all these things, he's saying, stop trusting in your own strength. Stop trusting in your self-salvation project. Come awake out of your self-deception and see your great need for a Savior. See the all-sufficiency of a Savior who will meet you when you finally empty your hands of all the nonsense that you think is saving you that's just trinkets in the eyes of an Almighty God and just come to Him empty-handed and He will meet you. That's what leads us to our fifth picture, our fifth word picture, because again, here we have another illustration of Jesus' mercy toward us where we see Jesus pursuing the church. He doesn't just leave them in their sin. He doesn't just say, well, I've spat you out of my mouth and so that's that. Just like he gave time and opportunity for people to repent throughout these seven addresses to these churches, he gives time and opportunity for the Laodiceans to repent. He desires for their repentance. There's this theme in these seven letters that I think really magnifies what God says elsewhere, like in 1 Timothy or 2 Peter, where he says, he desires that none shall perish, but that all, he's patient with you, desiring none, none to perish, but all to come to repentance. This is God's heart. And so here we see a picture, fifthly, fifth word picture, a picture of an open door to repentance, verses 19 and 20. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And he with me. Jesus comes to them in this position, in this posture of love, not judgment. He comes to them out of a desire for them to know him and to turn to him. He doesn't just leave them to themselves. Do we see this is rebuke is motivated by this great love and that love is pictured by him actually coming and standing at the door of this church and knocking. He wants inside. He wants to be let in. It's a striking picture that we should really feel the weight of here. Imagine Jesus himself standing outside of those doors. And the church inside of the doors, inside of the assembly, proclaiming something of a gospel of self-sufficiency. We figured it out. You know? Like, we've been created in God's image, and so, you know, God wants us to be good, and so we can be good enough, and we can pull ourselves up from our bootstraps, and so we sing of all the things that we can do, and we speak of all the things that we can do better, and there's this gospel of self-sufficiency being proclaimed, and Jesus doesn't just leave us to it. He's out there knocking at the doors and shouting, says, here's my voice. So he's calling to us. That's a striking image. They feel they have no need of him, so they keep him out. Functionally, they don't have a need for Jesus, so he's on the outside. He says, if you would just repent of this self-sufficient, self-deception, and let me cover your need, I will go beyond anything you could possibly ask or think. We'll feast together, friends. Probably in, in uh, view of this feast that we'll get to at the end of Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's where we find the sixth word picture, the picture of the promised outcome for the repentant. For those who repent, they're considered to be those who conquer with Christ. Verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The picture of the promised outcome for the repentant. This church, this church that believes itself so wealthy and powerful, he says to them, there are those who are poor, 
you know, like in Smyrna, in Philadelphia, those whom the people in, the, in, in cities like Laodicea would despise and mock because of their poverty. You know, they'd think less of them. But Jesus will grant them to sit with him on his throne to be co-conquerors. And the same thing is being held up to Laodicea. All they have to do is recognize their poverty, recognize their neediness. Again, we see this theme of union with Christ, that those who have Christ are given everything that he has. That's the promised outcome for the repentant. We're given, we're given Christ, we're given union with Christ, and we're given everything that Christ has. So finally, picture number seven, then we see a picture of the universal extent of this teaching. A picture of the universal extent of the teaching. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It has universal extent in the sense that this teaching applies to every church. And beyond that, it applies to every person. In other words, it's not just the church in Laodicea who, who's functionally shut Jesus out because they think they're so great on their own and they think they're saving themselves. Like, I totally understand why some might read these seven short addresses to this, these churches in Revelation, to say nothing of the book of Revelation as a whole, get discouraged because one could argue it does seem to focus on what we're doing wrong, how, how we're condemned unless we turn and repent, sort of like what we find throughout the Old Testament. And Christ, didn't he offer us his mercy and grace? Like, isn't that what we should be reading about? So why this focus? Why this focus on... You better do the right things. You better turn from your sin or there'll be judgment. You better repent. Where's the mercy and grace? But the difference here is that rather than having a focus on what these churches need to do to bring course correction, to be faithful, some kind of a list of things to do or not do, Jesus' main condemnation, his primary one, his central concern for these churches is that they're, here's where they're not faithful. They're not faithful in relying entirely on him. And trusting entirely in him. It's an issue of recognizing the grace that he holds out and receiving it. Recognizing our need for it and actually receiving it. They're trusting in themselves and other things to save them. They're trusting in their word over his word. They're looking into the word and saying, yeah, I mean, I know it says that. But I think I know better than him. And so he's calling them back to himself by grace and mercy. Back to himself, back to his grace. And this is helpful as we conclude these seven churches, these addresses to these seven churches, and reflect on them for a minute. This is helpful. It's helpful to hear that he's calling them back, not to a law, but to grace. It's helpful to hear for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's a loving reminder to us that on this side of eternity, we're all susceptible to being unfaithful to Christ for a variety of reasons. We are all susceptible to an unfaithfulness that decides that we would rather have the accolades of the world than have the accolades of Christ. That, that we need acceptance, and so acceptance of broader culture means perhaps an unfaithfulness to the world around us. We're all susceptible to potentially uh, having a religious reaction that makes us think that we've arrived by nature of how, how good of a Christian we are by what we do and what we've done has saved us. We're susceptible to having an irreligious version of that where we have positioned ourselves self-righteously over the word. We must all keep careful watch both on how we live and what we believe. We're all susceptible to, to saying, we're all susceptible to saying, yeah, we, we believe that this is right doctrine, 
but then living in a way that's not loving, living out of line with that right doctrine, right? So that what we believe and what we do don't really match up. We're all susceptible to unfaithfulness in those ways, and that's something we need to hear, and it's one of the reasons we need to gather. It's one of the reasons why the church should be a place uh, where we feel unburdened, like, right? Like, so during the week, there's, there's hardship, there's pressure, we see our sin, we're confronted by our sin, and on Sunday we gather to hear the proclaimed word, and it's like an unburdening in a sense. We, it's the place where we can come honestly and confess our sins together, and honestly repent of those sins together. And that so that also leads us to the second reason why it's so helpful. Because secondly, Jesus is the answer to the problem of our heart. In other words, the answer isn't something I have to do here. The answer isn't something the Laodiceans have to do. The answer is something that only he can provide. The way to repentance and faithfulness is actually a reliance on the one who can do what we can't do for ourselves. That's, that's it. So in other words, this is foundational and it's crucial to understand. Jesus doesn't love you because you loved him first. It's the other way around. Like, Jesus doesn't commune with you because you're a follower of God. You're a follower of God because he communed with you. You love him because he loved you first. You pursue him because he pursued you first. And so, as a fellow student from Trinity put it years ago, he says, we're not forgiven because we repent. We repent because we're forgiven. It's God's kindness to us in Christ that leads to repentance. The mercy is first, friend. Always take heart. I'll read that again. We're not forgiven because we repent. We repent because we're forgiven. It's God's kindness to us in Christ that leads to repentance. The mercy is first, friend. Always take heart. See, the problem in Laodicea isn't that they haven't repented that they might be forgiven. It's that they haven't demonstrated the nature of their forgiveness by, repented, that, by repenting. That if they had truly thrown themselves on the mercies of Christ, you'd see repentance. That's the central theme in this passage. If there's one central idea that I believe Jesus to be communicating to this church in Laodicea, it's this. The church is called to recognize their need for Jesus and rest entirely in his grace that leads to repentance. The church is called to recognize their need for Jesus. Christians are those. Christians are those who recognize their need for Jesus, rest entirely in his grace, leading to repentance. Right? And nowhere do we see this more clearly than in this proclamation of the Lord's table in which both grace and mercy and union with Christ leading to repentance is present. Christ shed his blood that his body was broken, and now he goes with us. 